Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Thanks for listening to Creative Control. Uh, While I have you here, please consider supporting Youth Empowerment and Support Services, otherwise known as YES. Based in Edmonton, Alberta, YES provides immediate and low-barrier overnight and day shelter, temporary supportive housing, and individualized wraparound supports for young people aged 15 to 24. They work collaboratively within a network of care focused on the prevention of youth homelessness by providing youth with the necessary supports to stabilize their housing, improve their well-being, build life skills, connect with community, and avoid re-entry into homelessness. Learn more about how to donate or otherwise support YES by visiting YESS.org. This is Dmitry Samarov from Chicago, Illinois. And I love listening to Vishkana's creative control because whether he's talking to a favorite musician or actor of mine or someone I've never heard of, it's as if he's introducing me to a new friend. And the way things are going, couldn't you use a new friend? Listen now. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash creative control today. Peter Jesperson, Jason Jones, and Bob Mayer are all American people who have each played some role in initiating interest in and preserving the legacy of The Replacements, a rock and roll band from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Initially active between 1979 and 1991, with sustained reunion touring activity occurring between 2013 and 2015, The Replacements have been subject to fascinating and painstaking retrospective assessments, including Bob Mayer's wonderful 2016 book, Trouble Boys, The True Story of the Replacements, some recently released archival live performances, and some wondrous expanded album box sets via Rhino Records, including Dead Man's Pop, which won a 2021 Grammy Award for Mayer's liner notes. On October 22, 2021, Rhino releases a 40th anniversary 100-track 4-CD, 1-LP, Deluxe Edition of The Replacement's debut album, Sorry Ma, Forgot to Take Out the Trash, and to celebrate everything about it, 
I gathered together the band's first manager and label representative at Twin Tone Records, Peter Jesperson, one of their biggest fans who represents Rhino, Jason Jones, and their ardent chronicler and historian, Bob Mayer, and we had a talk about what might be the most comprehensive and revelatory of all the Replacements box sets, the band's role in its construction, future plans for the Replacements and this series of releases, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it and make flexible monthly donations at patreon.com slash creative control with additional support. From Blackbird Music, a well-stocked record store with locations in Edmonton and Calgary, Alberta, and friendly staff who will happily help you source special orders for hard-to-find titles, which you can learn more about at blackbird.ca, plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is the 644th episode of Creative Control, featuring the lovely and talented Peter Jesperson, Jason Jones, and Bob Mayer, with your host, me, Vishkana. Hello, Bob, Jason, Peter, are you there? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> it's nice to talk to a couple of you uh, again, uh, Bob and Jason. It's, welcome back to the show, Jason. It's nice to... Uh, connect again how you doing there i'm doing okay how are you doing vish i'm well i'm well thank you where in the world are you today jason i am in los angeles california that's where you were the last time it's like nothing is <laughs> it's like nothing has changed it's the yeah. same this is great i think i'm i think i'm sitting in the exact same spot uh oh, that, that, well, where we did the last one so you know the more things change the more they stay the same i could kind of tell you were sitting in the same spot it felt familiar mm-hmm. Yeah, your voice felt familiar. Well, it's nice to connect again. Uh, uh, Bob, are you there? I am. How are you? I'm well. Thank you very much for asking. Uh, where in the world are you? Uh, at the moment, I am in Tucson, Arizona, visiting my folks. Oh, that's nice. How's everything going in Tucson? It is uh, hot, but uh, relatively pleasant by Arizona standards. So, from what I've heard, from what I've heard tell, it's a dry heat. Is that true? That is that is a, a catchphrase around here when it gets to be about 100 degrees. <laughs> Everyone says, well, at least it's a dry heat. That's right. That's the joke. I was making the joke. Are you explaining <laughs> my joke, Bob? That's what I was thinking. Anyway, it's uh, nice to have you back uh, uh, on the show as always, Bob. Thank you for making time. And uh, someone someone I've never spoken to before. Peter, are you there? I am here. It's very lovely to have you on the show, Peter. How, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Now, where in the world are you? I, I'm in North Hollywood, but I just rushed here from uh, uh, the USC campus, my Son is going to school there, and they're having a, you know, parents' orientation weekend. So we were down there for some things at eight fifteen this morning, and came home for this. And we're going back for some things in the afternoon, and then the psychedelic furs are performing tonight. So that'd be fun. Really? Wow. What? Wait a minute. Just a Peter. What year is it where you are? <laughs> it is uh, twenty twenty one. Okay. <laughs> Just that's amazing. That's great. That's fantastic. Do you feel? Do you feel oriented now that you've gone through the... Or- I, I do feel oriented. I mean, I've been down to campus several times. There's a couple concert halls there where I've seen music over the years. So I was familiar with it already. And we had toured it when uh, our boy was first uh, applying there a couple of years ago. So we were familiar with it. But uh, but yeah, it's exciting. And the Psychedelic Furs is, uh, is going to be fun. There's also, of course, a replacements connection because uh, the singer 
Richard Butler was a huge replacements fan. And uh, I remember Paul and I going to meet him on a tour bus when they came through Minneapolis one time. And I, I will never forget the look in his eyes when Paul walked up the stairs onto the bus. I mean, he looked like Elvis Presley had just walked in. Oh, wow. It, it was it was it was one of the first times where I really went, wow. You know, this guy really has had an impact uh, beyond what I would have ever imagined. Well, you can I can tell by the liner notes and uh, from uh, Bob Bob's book that after establishing themselves, uh, Paul and the replacements did have that impact on younger musicians, their colleagues, their peers. So I think your story exemplifies the story you just told exemplifies that. But Peter is I mean, is that wrong? Did they, they had a reputation for being kind of top of the heap uh, in terms of songwriting and charisma, even in the era we're about to discuss. Is that fair? Well, I mean, in smaller numbers, yeah, I think there were a lot of people that caught on to them uh, early on, but there was also a lot of uh, doubting Thomases, shall we say, uh, and then also people who were a little miffed that they were kind of jumping ahead in line. They, they felt that the replacements hadn't, quote-unquote, paid their dues, you know. Mm. So there was some resentment from some of the uh, cognoscenti, as it were, but... Um, but yeah, there were some key people in the early days that, that fell for him as hard as I did, and that was uh, good reinforcement because I was so crazy about him. But it helped me not feel like I was out of my mind. You know? <laughs> yes, yes, that comes across in everything I've read as well. Uh, your mental health uh, about what? Why am I the only one that sees the magic here? What's going on? Uh, no, <laughs> I no. It first of all, I just want to say congratulations to all three of you for another wondrous. Set. This is remarkable. This Sorry Ma set is unbelievable. So congrats right away. I'm going to begin uh, the conversation about it with Jason, actually. Jason, given your hand in assembling or co-assembling previous archive sets, uh, and just for people who, who aren't caught up there, and you can correct me too, Jason, there's Dead Man's Pop, which contained, I think, by my math, 69 tracks. Is that right? Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to put you on the spot with a specific figure, but... <laughs> I, think, I don't have the box here in front of me or else I, I could tell you exactly. But yeah, something something in the range of like 64 or 69 uh, tracks, right. something and, like that. Right. And then there was the Please to, to Meet Me box, which is, I believe, the last time you and I uh, connected was about that box. And that had around, by my count, 68 tracks. And just correct. trust me, on, trust me on these figures because I, okay. I did some I did some counting. Uh, I think they're okay. correct, but I could be wrong. Anyway. So I want to begin with you here. Can you discuss both what this Sorry Ma set, which I mentioned these other track figures, because this one, by my count, has 100 tracks? Is that right, 100? Correct, it's 100 tracks. Right. And I wonder if you can actually just take us through uh, what this set contains, generally, and, and also how significant this... I've been calling it to my... I said to my wife the other day, this is primordial. This is... Quite incredible. This is really amazing material. Can you talk about this set and what it contains and how significant you think it is for fans of the band? Well, I, th I think, you know, in, in the world of the replacements, I think the most replacements-esque thing that we could do was take a punk rock record and turn it into a 100-track box set. <laughs> you know, I think that that is... That, well, it really goes back to the, the just the sheer wealth of material that we had at our disposal. Yeah. Whenever whenever Bob and I first talked about these kind of like uh, archival projects, one thing that Bob kind of had in mind was 
a condensed two CD uh, set that kind of covered the twin tone years. Uh, now, whenever we kind of looked at what was from the Sorry Ma era within that kind of condensed collection, we were like, oh, wow, we actually have the majority of this will be Sorry Ma. So, like, let's look and see what what we actually have on mm-hmm. hand. Mm-hmm. And with the Herculean lifting and help of Peter Jesperson, you know, we had access to a lot of material. So you're getting the original album remastered uh, by Justin Perkins, who handled all the remastering for Hitman's Pop and for uh, the Please to Meet Me set. You also have a wealth of demo material. That's everything from like the earliest, earliest, earliest replacements demo that has tracks you've never heard before, like Try Me and She's Firm, mm-hmm. an early version of Looking For You. Then you have the actual tape that Paul handed to Peter that completely set this wild adventure of the replacements on the road. Then you have just a, a dry run a studio demos, basically like a tryout for Twin Tone to see if it could actually work in a studio. And Peter found a basement reel to reel of them playing in their basement of where he just stood there with a, with a reel to reel like machine and a microphone hearing them do like rattlesnake and taking a ride and like the hardcore version of Johnny's going to die. It's, it's nuts. Like it's, it was like, we kept digging, we kept digging and then we just kept uncovering more and more. Now there was on the previous expanded edition, there was a, that was already a very expansive. Right. Uh, this is the 2008 edition. Yeah. The 2008 edition. Yes. On CD only. Is nuts. Yeah. It's nuts. Yeah. Just the sheer amount of historical documents that are, that are included on that collection like blew my mind as a fan. Yeah. And there's some of that stuff that is on this collection. So, but there's also a wealth of studio outtake material. So you're hearing things where, you know, there's different guitar solos. There's, you know, more, even more energetic versions of certain tracks. You're hearing different mixes. You're hearing just different ideas basically of them in the studio. And also you're hearing some of the bedroom recordings of Paul Westerberg that were handed over to Peter and trusted to Peter because it was material that, you know, was maybe a little outside of the range of the band yeah. at the time. Yeah. And, and maybe in shows that more singer songwriter side of Paul. And even on top of all that stuff, you have a completely unreleased, live show of them live at the seventh street entry in Minneapolis in January of 1981, 27 song blistering set like nuts. (laughs) And you're hearing them as like a bar band and it's amazing. Yeah. I had it playing in the kitchen yesterday and Tommy spoke at one point and my wife said, why is there a little kid on this recording? (laughs) Cause he was a little kid. That's what I said. I think he he was was 14 at the time. She's like, what? I'm like, yeah, he was the youngest person to ever play that bar, I believe. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so that kind of that's like the rundown of everything that's on the disc and uh, the LP that's included in the set is. Whenever we go into these, we, we kind of we don't want you to just buy the same old stuff again. Yeah. Like, there's a reason why we didn't put "Oh, Sorry, Ma" on LP again 
in this box. We, so we kind of compiled an alternate version of Sorry Ma using some of the demo and outtake material to compile just an alternate view uh, and an alternate experience in listening to Sorry Ma. So it's a lot of bang. So it's a lot of bang for your yeah, buck. It, it, it is incredible. And I will say, Jason, I know you are listed in the Guinness Book of World Records for being the biggest replacements fan of all time. I appreciate <laughs> your emotional restraint. I heard you just like, I can tell you're excited, but I could appreciate you just being like, I got to explain this. I got to keep calm here. There's a lot of amazing <laughs> stuff. And I appreciate it. That was very, you set the table very nicely and calmly. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Cause it's what I would, I would think, Jason, like it's one thing to be told that this stuff exists. It's another to hear it. I guess I just wonder, was there anything, like, again, those tapes of Paul? Like, I've, we've heard about Paul secretly, basically secretly showing up at Peter's house to hand him a tape of solo stuff. But when you hear it here, it's something else. Was there anything in this batch of archive material, Jason, that shocked you as, as I say, uh, the Guinness Book World, Guinness Book of World Records title holder for Biggest Replacements fan? Was there anything where you're like, holy shit. I can't believe this. Was there anything in particular? Well, I mean, there was a lot of stuff. I mean, the yeah. thing to me that kind of blew my mind the most was the, there's two things, the initial twin tone studio demo mm-hmm. session. That was uh, to, to just see the, the jump in their playing and in their songwriting in such a very short amount of time. Like, you could have released most of that studio demo as Sorry Ma if Peter and the rest of Twin Tone had so chosen to do so at the time. It's that good. Yes. Uh, and also the solo demos. Like, they're, they're jaw-dropping. Yeah. yeah, like They're I, amazing. They are. And in that vein, Peter, I want to go to you because I think Jason has astutely pointed this out because that stuck out for me uh, as well by by way of their earliest demos and performances that you've all gathered here, I think the replacements and Paul Westerberg, they sounded fully formed. Like as much as they explore different styles later, I think what we're hearing here is that their core, their distinctive voice as a band, it seems to be here right away. And that's sort of shocking. Like, I mean, we've, some of us have spent so much time with this record, you know, obviously 40 years, some of us, you, not me, I was, four when it came out so i i didn't hear it right away but anyway peter in the same vein what surprised you most about revisiting this material given what you know jason and i have just been sort of discussing what surprised you the most well i got to write a little piece for the for the booklet on this and 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 i and i opened that with saying the thing that surprised me the most or the thing that I feel strongest about was how great these recordings still sound to me 40 years later. It was, and you know, I, I probably don't go more than a couple of weeks without listening to the replacements for one reason or another. It's not like, Oh, I haven't listened to them for 10 years and Oh, this is so refreshing to hear again. I mean, I, you know, I, I love the band and, and they're part of my regular diet of listening. Yeah. But when we really got down to the brass tacks and started listening to these tracks, it was astounding to me how good they sounded. And I don't mean that they were well produced. I mean, I think that they're produced in a way that fits, you know, the time period. But, you know, we were learning. We were flying by the seat of our pants. So it wasn't like we were great producers. We had a great engineer, uh, Steve Felstead, um, mm-hmm. who, who helped basically get these things on tape. But, you know, the rest of it was really, you know, the band doing, you know, whatever little fixes need to be done. I mean, it was 
not really all live in the studio, but basic tracks, you know, were, you know, the, the core of the tracks were often fairly live in the studio. And then we, you know, uh, certainly guitar solos were uh, added later and, and uh, you know, other things like, you know, on Don't Ask Why, we added chimes for some reason or things like that. And certainly Paul re-sang them a number of times uh, to get what we felt was the right version to represent the track properly. So, but I, but I do think that maybe the most astonishing thing was hearing these songs over and over again after I'd already heard the songs over and over again for several years. And certainly when we were first making them, uh, you know, it took us seven months to get this record finished uh, from the time we started recording until we, you know, sent it out to mastering. So, you know, I'd already heard these songs a thousand times and to hear them over and over again as, you know, Bob and Jason and I, you know, would talk about them and, and debate what was the better version of Shut Up or what was the better version of Johnny's Gonna Die or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it really was remarkable to me that I never once thought, oh, God, I don't want to hear, you know, I hate music again. I mean, it was like every time I would put it in, it was like putting my finger in an electrical socket. I mean, it just... You know, and of course, there's a lot of emotional things in it for me as well. But I just think the sheer uh, force of their thing, you know, just uh, constantly overwhelmed me. Yeah. You were getting kind of meta and ironic there by saying someone might get sick of hearing the song I Hate Music over and over again. <laughs> I thought I thought that was interesting. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, given, given how Jason uh, earlier kind of outlined some of the aspects of the set, I, I have a logistical question for you, Peter. Like, given your role as the replacement's first guardian angel let's call you uh custodian manager co-producer i'm just babysitter curious, babysitter where was this rare like i mean jason alluded to the fact that you had this reel-to-reel uh from their uh from their basement a recording from the basement but i'm just wondering where was this rare early audio material like the demos the basement demos alternate alternate takes you know all captured on various kinds of tape i, I just wondered where was it before it was digitally transferred for this set, did you have it like in a vault hidden in the baseboards of your house or something? Where where did this stuff live? Well, I mean, you know, I'm obviously you know moved to California in 1995 and and uh, brought everything with me. So I, I'm just one of those guys who you know I've been a music nut since I was a kid and I've saved everything. I mean, just I have a ton of stuff, and that especially goes for the recordings and. And a lot of what, uh, you know, we have 67 unreleased tracks here out of the 100. And, you know, the bulk of what is on this box set are, I guess, what I would call dailies. If you're talking about the movie business, you know, the the dailies that the director or the producer look at, you know, after uh, the production work is done for the day. Yes. They um, look at, examine what they had done. And that's what we did. Uh, Every time we were in the studio, I would run a cassette of you know, the work that we did and we would end up back at my apartment and listen to them and try to determine what was good and what was not, what, what went wrong, what went right. Yep. And uh, what we needed to maybe fix the next day or the next time we went back in the studio. So there are just, there's hundreds of cassettes. And when we did the 2008 reissues, we were fairly limited. There wasn't the same, I mean, I hope it's okay to say, Jason, there wasn't the same enthusiasm at Rhino for the replacements uh, projects uh, in such a sprawling manner as, as there is now. Hmm. Uh, and that's no criticism. I understand, you know, why that happened. But but I remember actually when we were doing the 2008 reissues, uh, initially they had sketched out a plan of what they thought it should look like and presented it to me and said, well, we want double CDs on Tim and Please to Meet Me. And 
I said, hmm, well, there really isn't enough material to do double CDs on those, but I can give you a double CD on Sorry, Ma. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. Interesting. You know, so yeah. we did end up putting, I think, 31 songs on the CD version of Sorry, Ma. So we, it, it could have been a double, but it was certainly a, enough material, you know, to make it feel like it was a worthy of a two CD set. But anyway, yeah. we didn't, we didn't need a second CD because the songs were so short. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess I, I hope that answers your question. I didn't meander too much. No, no, this is a meandering safe space. Don't worry. Uh, All right. Bob yeah. and Jason are familiar. It's fine. Don't worry. Yeah. Uh, before I move on to Bob though, Jason, did you want to comment on what I know? <laughs> you're the biggest fan. So I assume you were like, guys, I know what happened in 2008, but you got to listen to me. There's way too much stuff. We got to do something. Did you do that? Did you have to do that? Well, here's the thing is that, you know, I I mean, just to be honest, Rhino, as far as like catalog is concerned, is in a totally different place now than where they were hmm. in 2008. Yeah. And also the industry has kind of changed over the course of those, you know, 13 years. So I think that there's a better appetite now for these expansive you know, robust additions, you know, and also the band reuniting and also all the, you know, the great kind of archival work that has been done since 2017 has really laid the groundwork for something like this to exist. Right. So it's, yeah. you know, you know, I always looked at what Peter did in 2008 as these are the seeds of what could be possible with something big and over the top yeah you know because as peter has alluded to there are some records that don't have a wealth of material right you know right. that's that's just that's just a sheer that's that's the big elephant in the room with certain uh records within their catalog right you know i wouldn't expect a four cd stink don't hold your breath for that. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> that ain't happening. It, you know? it is a, it's an interesting um, sort of contemporary observation. Like, I feel like in a general sense, we live in one of the most ahistorical periods that I can recall in my lifetime. And yet the appetite for historical projects like this one has never maybe been greater. It's weird. Uh, I'm speaking maybe sociopolitically, not replacements wise. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also just streaming itself has just opened up a different avenue for discovery. Right. So, and also a different way in which people actually purchase music yeah. these days. Yeah. You know, there's there's a ton of listeners who will, you know, immediately, you know, get their copy as soon as it comes out. Or if you've pre-ordered it on rhino.com, uh, you can get, hopefully you will get yours by street date. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's another kind of fan who will probably spend some time with it on streaming to say, you know, do I want to lay down yeah. X amount of dollars in order to, to, in order to get this? And I hope that, you know, that, that conversion rate for the people who are on the fence about it you know, that, that they actually do, you know, see the care and wealth of material that is presented within this historical document uh, and, and, you know, and go for it because we want to do more. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. We always, whenever we're, whenever we talk about doing these archival projects, we kind of just, okay, we're going to do one. Okay. Let's see how it does. Yeah. And then let's see what's possible. What next step we can take. Yeah. And if I can add one thing, on top of, as Jason said, Rhino being a different company and the, and the era being different, I think we have to 
you know, give a lot of the credit to Bob Mayer for writing the book Trouble Boys. I mean, I think 100. that that has done, I mean, more than anything to cement the legacy of the band, or maybe not even to cement, but to create uh, uh, the, the legacy for a lot of people that would never have dreamed something like that could have been put into a 500-page book. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an amazing feat that I'm so grateful that Bob was, was able to do. Well, that is a perfect segue because uh, I feel very badly. I have neglected Bob oh, that's for all about right. tw- 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 25 minutes now. Bob, <laughs> yes, uh, Bob, I, I apologize. You are my oldest friend in this group, and I feel I've treated you the worst. How, Bob, how are you? How are you doing 25 minutes, and you still good? I'm doing good. I, I appreciate Peter uh, sort of giving me credit. But, you know, the, the thing with this band is uh, the music is the thing that really ultimately kind of uh, has created the legacy. And I think putting the emphasis back on the music as we have with these reissues, this being our, our fourth major release and sixth, including record store day stuff in the last five years. You know, I think me telling the story in a book was sort of one part of it. But really, the, the things I had the luxury of being able to hear some of these unreleased things and uh, early demos and all that kind of stuff, because it helped inform and tell the story. And they're certainly mentioned in there. But what I sort of was always hoping with the, the reissue projects was to be able to bring the stuff that I was, you know, only a handful of people had heard and be able to sort of take it kind of to the public and to the masses so that the the musical and creative story, the replacements would be better contextualized, you know, because so much of yeah. Uh, of this stuff that we've done, you know, whether it was the the live at Maxwell's in 2017 or Dead Man's Pop in 2019 or the really expansive studio stuff with Please to Meet Me is to kind of show the scope and breadth of the band's creativity and a, and a peek into their process. And, you know, typically they weren't ones to sort of let anyone sort of see behind that curtain. And I just think it, it adds a whole other dimension to their, to their creative story in addition to the kind of, you know, personal and narrative story of, that I told in the book. So it's sort of an extent and a compliment and a companion to, to what the book started. And, and you know, there, you, there's nothing beats hearing these these records and hearing these kind of moments of creation in the studio or on the stage. Yeah, absolutely. Now, for those who, who aren't aware, Trouble Boys, the true story of The Replacements is the book we're alluding to. It came out in 2016. Uh, it is a great book, let alone the definitive, exhaustive biographical history of the band, which, to Peter's point, I think rejuvenated interest in the band uh, to have their story that you could hold in your hand and read. I think that did change and alter the way the band was perceived and even received and, and remembered. So I will echo the thanks there, Bob. Uh, and, sure. and as you say, you've been writing the liner notes for these uh, archive sets. Oh, Bob, congratulations. Yes. You you won a Grammy for Dead Man's Pop. Congratulations. I uh, haven't talked to you. Yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to get that uh, in, I guess, March of this year. Uh, for for the work on Dead Man's Pop, so it was even though the, technically the Grammys in my name, it also says the replacements in parentheses on there. So I, I consider it a a major achievement to have a, a Grammy replacements <laughs> on it. You know, is this the first? This must be the first ever replacements Grammy. Is that right? Uh, first award, but uh, oddly enough, uh, on their last album, All Shook Down in 1991. Uh, they were nominated for a Grammy in the first year of the, I think, relatively short-lived alternative music album category. Right. At the dawn of, you know, the alt-rock explosion, and they decided to to put a, an alt-music category or album category. I can't remember actually how, how long it lasts, but there's a kind of interesting article about the short and troubled history of that, uh, or odd history of that award. But uh, so, yeah, technically they did get a Grammy in, in 91, 
but uh, this is the first sort of award, albeit somewhat tangential, but uh, yeah, connected to the replacements. No, no, sorry. So the 91 thing was a nomination, not the... Nom- yeah, nom- yeah, nomination. They didn't win it. I think uh, well, Sinead O'Connor won that, that year. So. Yeah. She did. Let me just <laughs> say... Let me just say, well deserved. That's fine. Yes. That, I, I I have no problem. I have no issue with that. That's good. But I also, <laughs> congratulations. Before we get into the liner notes that you've written here, Bob, where is the Grammy Award right now? Uh, it's on a shelf in my office at home. That's it. There's no shrine. Yes. No. Although I did, somebody told me uh, a friend of mine in Nashville said somebody that she knew had won a Grammy and they had displayed it in the front window of their house with a spotlight on it so that even cars passing by on the street yeah, that seemed a bit excessive. So uh, yeah, for for now I'm just keeping it in the office <laughs> with my books and other other things. So seems wise. Seems yeah. wise. Yeah, good call. So you mentioned that you know one of the things that you appreciate uh, about being able to. Uh, put all your exhaustive research, uh, you know, to connect it to the actual music that some of us haven't heard. You got to hear it. I appreciate yeah. I appreciate that aspect of, of, of your work here. Did you wind up revising or updating any part of the story about this era? Uh, in this case, sorry, Ma, about this era that you told in Trouble Boys? Were there things? Because I remember I, I texted you or messaged you to say, I'm rereading the book, and you're like, "Well, you should really read the liner notes. I think they're <laughs> they're a little up to well, date." Uh, I, well, it's also also the scope. I mean, the way we've done these liner notes with the last couple, Dead Man's Pop was more a narrative kind of uh, approach because just because of the way that sort of story needed to be told. But you know, what I had with a lot of the stuff is such a wealth of of interviews with people, some of whom you know are no longer with us. And you know, in the book, you have to condense that stuff down. So the, for the last couple, and including the notes for Storm, all we done it is sort of a largely an oral history. It's at least the the main essay is a kind of oral history and the voices of the people who were involved. And so it really kind of lets you go deeper. And I did new interviews. And so there was some, you know, because we got further deep into the production, into the sort of history of the tracks, how things were recorded, little details that, um, you know, were maybe tangential in the, in the context of the book, but here they really kind of go to uh, underscore, you know, what, what you're listening to and what the sort of listening experience is. So we wanted to include those. So it's, yeah, it's, it's updated. I wouldn't say anything's dramatically corrected, or, but there's some more detail. And certainly you get the, the story from a bunch of different perspectives of people that, you know, maybe I didn't, wasn't able to quote or quote as fully in the book. So, you know, and I always like that format. Uh, I'm not, I'm not, you know, oral history's become pretty, pretty commonplace in it. And I don't know that it's always the best way to sustain a story in a, in a, in a book form. But I think for a set of liner notes where you're talking about something very specifically like an album or a very specific period, in this case, we're covering about 18 months uh, of the band's sort of prehistory into the release of the first album. I think it works, you know, really effectively. And so it's sort of a fun way to dig into the music and sort of have it be a companion to the music. And so that's, you know, another one of the reasons, in addition to the fantastic vinyl and having these CDs, you know, some of which, you know, some of that stuff, obviously you can listen to online streaming, but to have the whole package and, you know, there's about 40 or 50 new photos that nobody's ever seen before that we dug up, including the earliest uh, images of the band, which I've been sort of chasing after for about 12 years. So it's, it's a real, you know, we always try and, build these things in mind with the kind of total audio visual and sort of narrative experience in mind. And, and I think this one is really the best, best one we've done just because we have such an incredible wealth of material, both audio visual and text to work with. 
Yeah, the visuals are fantastic. I don't want to undermine that. I have a currently I have a PDF of this uh, of these liner notes and uh, the pictures, the photos, uh, all of the kind of uh, you know hand scrawled notes and things like that. It is really incredible. It's like a it's a it's like a replacements museum you can hold in your hands. And uh, <laughs> right, I, right. I really appreciate that. You can blurb that by the way. If it's not too late, you can <laughs> put that sticker put that sticker on the set. No, it's great. You mentioned that you did some new interviews. Paul, Tommy, like who did you talk to again well, since Trouble Boys? Well actually well Chris Mars, uh, who was the only really other person who didn't participate fully in the book, I spoke to him. He was sort of granted us opportunity to sort of run questions by him and, and I spoke to him uh and got some details, particularly about early stuff. I went back to talk to some people like Steve Felstead and, and, and Paul Stark and then dug through, you know, some archival stuff that I hadn't looked at, you know, since really starting the book. So there's some new stuff with guys in the replacements went back and again, just an additional layer of detail as it related to specific stuff with the recordings with, with some of the engineers and production people. And, and so, yeah, so it was kind of a revisiting some of, of it, doing some new stuff, and then sort of pulling it all together in a different form, obviously, in terms of an oral history than than we'd done, than I'd done really with the book. And so it's, uh, it's yeah, it's, it's pretty, the way we want, the way I wanted to look at it was to kind of, uh, the, the, the audio on it basically runs from early 1980, the band formed in December of 79, did their first recordings a couple months later in February, and then the record was released in September of, uh, or August of 81, so it's that period that we're covering and uh, with a little prehistory and a little post-history, but really it's it's so intensely focused on the kind of evolution of the band in that time, which I think is really interesting in the way the demos and the various recordings document that. And we kind of wanted the essays uh, to kind of reflect that similarly. Well, it is fantastic. And, and kudos for uh, getting Chris Mars on the record. He he was elusive, as I recall, uh, in our previous conversation. Yeah. So that's that's great. So in that same vein, Jason... I wonder, did the band play any role, beyond what Bob just described, did the band play any role in the assembly of this set? Like, did they help? Did they interfere? I can see them interfering for some reason. Did they help in any way? Well, I mean, whenever Bob and Peter and myself, whenever we compile all this stuff, we always send it over to the band members, primarily Tommy and Paul, to get their thoughts, to get their feedback, Mm. to get, you know... Approval to to do this kind of stuff. I don't know if we really had to drop much. I mean, we we kind of we kind of put everything together with an with an ear towards. Uh, I don't know if this will like this one track will fly. So maybe we shouldn't put this up for consideration. Yeah. And I think that there may have been one or two things from the bedroom demos that were not approved for inclusion. Well, we were trying to with these things. I always start. We always start out trying to tell a story. With Dead Man's Pop, it was obviously the kind of reinvention or the band's original intention with that record and the sort of recording adventure as they went coast to coast making that and kind of telling that story. With Pleased to Meet Me, it was more about the evolution of uh, the tracks from demo form into the studio. We, we were kind of really focused on um, them working outside of Minneapolis for the first time on that record and kind of what that studio experience going down to Memphis was like. With this one, it, it, it really, because our sources were from kind of all over the place, there was some pre, uh, sort of technically pre-replacements, pre-twin tone era, era stuff, then there's the very early twin tone stuff, and then there's the making of the record, and then Paul's, you know, home recordings that were being done sort of at the same time of this. And so we kind of set out just 
said, okay, here's the story we want to tell. Here's the kind of pieces that we think we need to tell the story. And no, we didn't really have any blowback. I think at this point in terms of the band and advanced management, um, you know, we've established a pretty good relationship and I I obviously have a long working relationship with them as, as does, you know, Peter and to a certain extent, Jason. And it's, it's, it's just kind of, you know, I go to them and say, here's what we want to do. And the objections or the resistance have been less and less as we've, you know, put out these records and certainly had success with them. I mean, the first one, Live at Maxwell's, was the band's highest charting Billboard album. You know, we won a Grammy for Dead Man's yeah. Pop. And, you know, all of them, you know, were very well received and, and sold well. So I think, you know, su- success begets trust from the band side. And, you know, they're not, they historically, their questions haven't always been super trusting or, or very eager uh, to kind of look back or, or really do the, that, that archival work. I mean, in, in 2008, Peter was, was the one I think really driving that and, and, and the leadership of Rhino at the time. But, you know, if it was left completely to their, to the band's devices, probably none of this stuff would exist because <laughs> that's just not, that's just not the way that Paul and Tommy, they're very much forward looking people, but they also, I think at this point have realized and accept and value the fact that, that, you know, they did something really special uh, over their decade plus together and over those eight albums. And that there's a real hunger from the fan base, not just the old fans, but new fans that are being made every day and every year uh, to learn more and hear more and dig into those corners uh, of their catalog and, and, and and the live recordings and, and really just like I say, fill out that picture and, and sort of add further to their creative legacy, because I think they're sort of, their mythic legacy as these, you know, as the replacements, you know, and, and, and writ large is, is, is well established. But I think what we're trying to do is kind of uh, with all this stuff is put the focus back on, you know, what an incredible songwriter Paul was, what an incredible band they were both in both iterations of the band with Bob Stinson and then later with Slim. And so, uh, so I think they've been just more accommodating as we've gone along. I mean, we've always really gotten what we wanted on all these, uh, on all these projects, but it's a lot easier now just because we've had some I, success. I just want to follow up on that a little bit because, you know, in this case, we're, we're talking about a record that came out 40 years ago. These guys were basically kids, early 20s. Tommy, we've already yeah. established, was in his teens. When we time capsule artists, uh, because they are kind of their personalities are kind of frozen in time, uh, we kind of assume that that's what they're like. And I kind of want to qualify, borderline, retract the tone of my last question, because these guys are adults now. And so <laughs> for me to be like, did they interfere? You know, I'm kind of playing on their legacy of being not caring, but right. in your experience with them, Bob and Jason, like you've been working with them more and more lately. Uh, Jason, I'll go to you first. Like, do you feel like they're still punky nihilists or do they, do they seem like calm dudes who are just like, yeah, yeah, we'll help you. We're not going to raise a big, we're not, we're not going to troll you, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? Uh, both. <laughs> it's both. You know, I feel like, yeah. I feel like that the DIY punk spirit, it never leaves your bones. Yeah. Whenever it's touched you, but you know, overall, like Bob said, you know, they're they're pretty they're pretty accommodating. Yeah, you know, and yeah. you know, there's not too many hills that we've had to die on. Uh, whenever it comes to uh, putting these kind of packages together, so I think that you know they've been. It all goes back to trust. Yeah, yeah, and I think that Bob. You know, we have a great ambassador in Peter uh, in Bob. We have another great ambassador in Peter. You know, me, I kind of handle the Rhino side of things so that there's trust within the the organization with these kinds of packages. So it's just it's 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 a it's a true partnership. Yeah. Okay, Bob. Did you want to say anything more about 
that or respond to that question? Uh, yeah, no. When I I just shake my Grammy at Paul Westerberg and he does whatever I say, right? <laughs> <laughs> He's blinded no, blinded uh, by the spotlight. No, I think. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, the, the, no. The, the truth of it is, uh, you know, nothing is ever easy with the replacements. Even now, okay. You know, there's always sort of back and forth and you know is this right is this wrong although mostly you know that's with management and, and them representing the band but again i think we've proven now you know this being the fourth release and then on the back of the book as well that you know we have the band band's best interests at heart and you know they've kind of left it to me and and, and to jason and, and 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 the you know the team so to speak that we have uh you know brian kihu who does our transfers justin who does all the mastering and and brian does some, did some of the mixing on on the old tracks that hadn't been mixed you know so we've, we've i think we've proven that we're using and, and, you know, Jeff Powell, who cuts our vinyl, it's like every every step along the way, we're using the best people and the best facilities yeah. and with the best sort of thing in, in mind. And I think it's reflected in the quality of the packages and the packaging and, and the reception we've gotten to that. So I think, you know, for all their inborn and inherent resistance and opposition to anybody trying to do anything, I think, you know, the proof is in the pudding. And I think, you know, to that extent, they've become a little bit more accommodating and, and uh, you know, and so, so that's kind of where it is, but, but that's still not to say that they're, you know, they were never going to be the kind of guys to necessarily in most cases go over mixes or listen, you know, and, and X this or X that it's sort of, they, they, they trust the, they've, we've got built enough trust that they'll, they let us kind of make those calls and, and do all that stuff. But obviously we, we can't do legally, realistically, we can't do any of this without everybody being on board and the band being on board. So it's kind of uh, inherent just in the fact that we're able to do them, that they're giving us the okay. Yeah. And also these kinds of packages, they are truly kind of love letters to both the band and to their fans. Yeah. Like that's the way I always kind of think about it, where there's not a lot of bands from this time period in particular who are getting this kind of treatment. Mm. And it really goes back to the trust and the love and the care in protecting and furthering their legacy as a band. Well, I think, uh, you know, as much as they might seem like they didn't care about stuff, this set really belies that because they took careful... It, it it is a certain level of intention to document yourself. Uh, however, on a boombox, however, you must recognize something in yourself. Like this, this should be captured. I feel like that was there, despite all the pain and all the stuff that they were dealing with as young people. There was some, and and, and sort of, um, it seemingly like presenting themselves as indifferent. Yet at the same time, when you look at these hundred tracks, like. This was a band that did care. That's what I come away from. You well, know what I mean? Well, and Peter can speak to that because, you know, he was there through the whole thing. But I think that's what the one of the things that this era and this period in this album shows is, you know, they really were working. And, you know, in their infancy, I think it was probably more true in a sense than it was later, even when they got more famous and had more opportunities. It's like this is the point where there was still things were still very pure. You know, there was no outside influences or factors. It was just like we're a band we want to sort of transcend what our limited prospects are as you know for high school dropouts uh you know and the class lower middle class people living in middle america in the late 70s early 80s and they very consciously i think in paul's case and even in bob's case you know viewed the band as their only opportunity up and out of whatever their existence was going to be and i think once peter got involved and gave them the kind of support system to sort of fulfill that 
uh, destiny, so to speak. They really worked hard at it. I mean, this is a band that was, and we talked about it in the line notes, they were rehearsing in that year five days a week, you know, and, and playing in between and in the studio as well. And so there was a lot of work, a lot of fine tuning, a lot of discovering their strengths amongst themselves and a lot of evolution happening. Even though they did come out fairly fully formed, you can hear from the first demo to the second demo to the third demo, you can hear this sort of thing coalescing more and more to the point where you get to the to the studio recordings or the live recording, which is done kind of in the middle of the of the album recording, and you just hear this incredibly powerful band that's 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 firing on all cylinders. And yes, they would go, I think, to even greater heights later on, but I think this is the point where there was no prospects other than, you know, maybe we can get a record out. Maybe we can get a gig. Maybe we can be something more than we are. And I think that, uh, that desperation and that commitment and that sort of, uh, that all chemical magic is happening, um, you know, before your very ears on this, across this whole set. Yeah, Peter, in a similar, but potentially oppositional vein to what we were just discussing in your essay uh, for these liner notes, you write of the band, they were smart, wildly entertaining to watch, and they were funny. God damn, they were funny. And yet there are points in the liner notes, that, and particularly in Bob's section and in within yours as well, in your essay, where the band's sort of random choices or self-sabotage or reverence when it comes to following any kind of plan <laughs> or any rules whatsoever. How many shows... Where they're supposed to play, you know, a couple of there's a, one of my favorite parts of this era is they were supposed to play two pivotal shows that were alcohol free. What do they do? They get drunk and they get kicked out and they can't play the show. It's like there seems to be that going on. That's self-sabotage or irreverence. And it seems to bewilder and baffle everyone trying to work with them, I think, including you, Peter. So my question, I guess, is was the replacements being so goddamn funny ever kind of frustrating or annoying for you at that point? Well, certainly. I mean, you know, there were times where they would do something to sabotage a situation that would make me angry at that moment. But when I look back on it, I think that was pure, pure replacements behavior. <laughs> and, and I sort of appreciate it in a way that I couldn't at the time. I mean, you know, there was a point like, I don't know, I remember, you know, doing a show in, at the University of Texas in Houston in 1984, maybe, uh, where, you know, they were just so fucked up on stage that they couldn't finish a single song. And the promoter actually came up to me at the soundboard and said, people are asking for their money back. What should we do? And I said, I'm really sorry, but I, I guess that you'll have to give them their money back. And he said, no, I mean, everyone here wants their money back. And, you know, at the time that was horrifying to me because we'd gotten to the point where we were making a little better money. And I knew that there had been a rather large deposit sent to our booking agent, Frank Riley. Uh, so how is that going to work? So I was, I was, you know, I was kind of scared at that moment, but now when I look back on it, I mean, it, it does, it, I mean, it's a great story and it's a, fits perfectly with the, the replacements legacy. I mean, this is a show where, and that's never happened. I've never even read about this, certainly never seen it happen before or since, but the police actually came in and took the instruments away from the band to get them to stop playing. I mean, it was, it was just, it was so extreme. So, you know, there are situations like that where, you know, yeah, you do, you do scratch your head and, and it can be terribly embarrassing, but, uh, you know, at the same time, that's part of the band. And, and again, we look back on it now sort of with a, a chuckle and at the moment it was like, I wanted to, 
you know, jump on an airplane and go home, you know? So, um, yeah. yeah. Well, well I, I will say, like, hearing that story and, and reading about them in these liner notes and then listening to some of this material, it actually makes this material from 1980, 1981, it really makes me contemplate further the band's, I would say, unheralded influence on the kind of alt-rock, anti-authoritarian, <laughs> alt-rock, anti-authority, I should say, anti-authority alt-rock that boomed in the 90s, a decade later. Like, I know Kurt Cobain once said that he never really listened to the replacements, but there's an alternate version of Shut Up Here, where if you told me that was Nirvana doing it, I wouldn't bat an eye. I'd be like, oh yeah, they must have just done it once. Like, it, the the influence to me, I, I maybe bands like Kurt, maybe he didn't even know they were just there, and, and they were in the subconscious. They were influencing so many of the people he liked uh, that maybe he didn't really recognize the source. And again, this might it might be hard to, to to quantify, but Bob, like I know this might be said of the band, the replacements generally, but is there anything about Sorry Ma in particular that makes it a prescient record for underground American rock? Is it is it possible to speak to that, Bob? Uh, I mean, I think probably their impact. I mean, it's certainly true, and you can sort of trace it. I mean, Frank Black, I interviewed him for the book, and, and he talked about how. The replacements were a massive influence when he was forming the Pixies, not so much in a direct sound or, or style, but their approach by the time certainly they got to let it be that, you know, a band in the indie rock world or this alternative world could be anything and everything because, you know, the replacements always were sort of willing to sort of try any type of music and any type of approach, you know, at, even at the risk of falling on their face. I think with Sorry Ma and this package in particular, I think the release Sorry Ma kind of came out, I think because of the, 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 the choices in terms of the material that they put on the finished record and maybe even some of the takes, it has this idea of being their early punk record or pop punk record. But I think what the expansion of the album on this set tells you is yes, that's certainly that punk energy was always there. I, I you know, I, and, and certainly Paul, had an understanding of punk rock but um he always said that the stinsons and chris mars they were more punk in attitude than they were in sort of sound per se or their exposure to it so it's it's really kind of classic rock in the best sense and and i think there's blues influences on this and the expanded thing that you can hear the intersection of where bob and and, and paul sort of connected on their early blues rooting there's a real pop sensibility present in all of pop uh, paul's songs you know the, the the brilliant couplet the catchy hook uh, it's it's delivered with this high velocity, high energy sort of punk kind of thrust. But I think what this record tells you and, and what the expanded version shows you is there was more to them, even at the beginning, which I think got fleshed out and became more visible, certainly by the time of Hootenanny and into Let It Be, where you've got everything from bubblegum to blues to electronic stuff, you know. So and I think, again, that goes to telling a bigger creative story. I think, you know, this this record, when it's dismissed or sometimes even lauded, it's lauded as a, you know, the great one of the great American pop punk records of that time or punk records of that time. But I think it's there's a lot more going on. Uh, beneath that sort of punkish packaging and i think you hear a lot more of that in this in this expanded set when you hear the different takes and the different songs and the different outtakes and unreleased material and certainly in the live context i think the scope and and the musicality of the band and and their their approach becomes uh, and, and influences become much more clear well no and i appreciate that and you're talking maybe sonically and aesthetically one of the things that comes through in these liners and Peter, you had to do this. You had to convince people at Twin Tone that, that this band was viable. And it wasn't until, you know, you did a session that was ostensibly meant to be a short demo session that your partner at the label was swayed. Initially, I think because of the 
reputation that preceded them, he probably thought, no, this isn't going to work out. So kind of what I'm getting at here is it's not simply the sonic quality of this record. It is this weird stance and tone of seemingly not caring about success, but working extremely hard. Uh, (laughs) That seemed to be a big thing in the 90s. Like, we don't care, external considerations, external reception, labels, suits, we don't give a shit about them. But at the same time, you want to establish yourself and get your music heard. So I don't know, Peter or Bob, if you want to speak to this, maybe Peter. Do you see what I'm kind of coming from there? Like, I feel like that was obviously present in, you know, New York punk and British punk of the of the mid to late 70s. But there's something very, these guys, these replacements that we're talking about, wrote really heartfelt, catchy songs. I didn't feel like they were nihilistic songs. They were well-structured classic sort of pop rock structures but they seemingly didn't seem to care but peter like what i'm learning as i delve into this era is they they really did is that fair well i mean i think you have to separate the fact from them wanting to be successful in writing and performing their music with playing the game that is involved in being a successful band you know there's uh, you know i mean like i admire rem you know, as much as I admire the replacements, but they did the classic shaking hands and kissing babies sort of approach. And the replacements were constitutionally incapable of doing that. And, <laughs> and so I think, I don't, I don't think it was um, that they were pretending they didn't care. They, they just didn't want to play the game. And I think there was a woman who had written some minor notes for that replacements, uh, all for nothing, nothing for all. Gina Arnold? Gina Arnold, yes. And she said, that she thought that there was something noble about the lead guitar player of the replacements, you know, playing in a diaper, mm. you know, on stage or something, you know, I mean, there was, I, and that, I, I'm paraphrasing badly here, but there was something noble about their rejection of having to play the game. And it really was, I mean, that was part of my predicament was I didn't know how to play the game and I couldn't, when they got signed to Sire and I suddenly found myself in the offices of, you know, Warner Records in New York City, I was like completely out of my element. I didn't know how to talk to those people. They they weren't impressed with me as a manager for the most part. I mean, it was like, it was, it, it, there was such a game to it that, that it just, it was sort of repulsive to me as well. Yeah. Do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. I do. I do know what you're saying. So I, I get and it. I, and, and, and don't get me wrong. There were some great people at Warner's. I mean, Michael Hill, who took over A&R for the replacements after they moved from Twinstone to, to Sire, you know, is, a, is a, an amazing person and a, and a real music guy and, and somebody who saw the beauty in this, you know, potentially difficult band to bring to a major label. But it was, uh, you know, it was really, I mean, you had to do some stuff that was, was seemed out of character or, or, you know, whatever. And so they were genuinely interested in, in you know, Paul, uh, driving with Paul uh, as often as I did, you know, it's often him riding shotgun while I'd be driving late at night and everybody else would be sleeping. And he was a button pusher on the radio. He was always looking for that song. And I know that deep down inside, he wanted to hear himself you know, on the radio and, it didn't work out for him in, in the, you know, in the sort of hit record sense of the word, but he certainly, you know, has made a, an impact maybe larger than some of the people that were having top 40 hits. Yeah. Peter, uh, you, you know, you were there as a participant at the time. So I gather it might be difficult to be objective 
about this next question. But I also know that you're, you know, one of the reasons everyone in the replacements wanted to work with you is because you seemed not you seemed this was this started out insulting. You see, you are a cool guy is what I was trying to say there, Peter. Everyone knows it. You're cool. You're a, a rock historian of some sort. You're a scholar. Like you had lots of records. People liked, uh, respected you for your knowledge about music. So if you can step back and somehow take a big picture view of this experience, does this era of the replacements feel particularly significant in sort of rock history? I know we've been talking about how they didn't seem to really care about that stuff. But when we, you know, obviously we think it's significant because we're talking about a hundred track box set. But for you, <laughs> do you feel like there's something that pe- the, the people are missing about how significant this era for the replacements was for music generally? I'm not sure I can answer that question. I, I mean, with the fact that, that, that we can be talking about a hundred track box set of the replacements, old recordings in 2000, you know, 2021, is, you know, one of the most gratifying experiences I have ever had in my life. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable because it just, for whatever reason, I heard something early on that was life-changing to me. It was just, I mean, you know, and I mentioned it in the liner notes in, 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 in my little piece, uh, that it was so good to me that I actually thought for a fraction of a second that maybe somebody's playing a joke on me and that they already have a, a record contract with a major label. I, I just thought there, this can't really be available to, to me and Twin Tone to make records with these guys because this is just so insanely brilliant. So I, I'm just glad that people are are coming around to it in larger numbers now than ever before. I, I couldn't be more proud of that happening. You know, and 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 another funny thing about that era when within a month or two of hearing that tape and there were people who were sort of trying to talk me off the ledge, like Peter, calm down. You know, this is like, okay, it's, you know, this is, this is a good band, but they're not, you know, the Rolling Stones or whatever. And I remember, I, I think literally wagging my finger at somebody who was in a competitive band at the time. And I won't mention any names, but I remember wagging my finger at this person and saying, someday people are going to be writing books about these guys. You just don't get it. And um, the fact that that actually happened, I mean, I don't know that I really believed it deep down inside when I said it, but I was trying to make a point. And the fact that that's actually happening now is, um, you know, or, the, or that, that, you know, there was a, a book that was written that was so good and so well received and is recognized as you know, one of the great rock biographies of all time. That I mean, it, it's always hard for me to believe on one hand, but on the other hand, it's like, well, shit, of course, it's about fucking time. Yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate your point of view on this. And for anyone uh, listening who wants to guess who Peter was alluding to there in terms of the finger wagging, please tweet at me and we'll start we'll start a pool. I'm I'm gonna say I'm gonna say it was Bob Mould, just because why not? Uh, oh, no, I appreciate that very much, Peter. Thank you so much. Um, Jason, you've alluded to the fact that you want to make more of these things as the as the rhino person here. Can you speak uh, to that? Yeah. Is there is there actually a chance we might see? Because it's not just these elaborate box sets. There have been some uh, live concerts that have been captured and pressed on vinyl. Uh, for those who don't mm-hmm. know, what's uh, this is always hard. You don't want to tell me. I know. I can already know what the answer is. What's coming up? Do you have a plan uh, for replacement stuff? No plan. 
Yeah, that's a no comment on that. I got it. I got it. Okay. So there's well, here's the because here's the thing is that you know we we've already kind of planned that 2022 is going to be a year that has a pause in it. Oh, okay. To where we've done three great expansive box sets. Maxwell's came before that, so you know that's mm-hmm. you know four releases in five years, yeah. or four four releases basically in four years. Uh, so. You know, I kind of want to give everyone just a moment to breathe, yeah. both from a fan perspective and also just us internally as the people who kind of think about these things all the time to see what is possible, what could be done next. Right. You know, right. it could be one thing. It could be three things. It could be zero things. You know, I we don't know just yet. Okay. No. I mean, if I'm being completely honest, it's just, you know, have I done research into certain things? Yes, because I always do that. <laughs> However, nothing is set in stone. Okay. No, that's totally, obviously fair enough, and I appreciate your candor. Thank you. Um, you yeah. know, the, the, if, if the replacements aren't making any music news for a box set, they occasionally will make the news when the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ballots are announced. Uh, Bob? Do you have any insights? Yes. <laughs> Do you have any insights about the band's rock hall of fame chances? Does it is it gonna be needed like a do we have to do like a march on Washington to make this happen? I'm just wondering. Well, they, did, they were nominated uh, in twenty thirteen uh, or the twenty fourteen class or whatever to you know, they're up for nomination, you know, uh yeah. or one of the finalists for nomination, you know. And they didn't get in. The way I understand it, I mean the rock hall is a very mysterious process. They haven't been on the ballot since, so I would say that does not augur well for their chances. But yeah. my hope is, you know, the, the the kind of the story or the telling of the band's story is not done yet. Uh, you know, in terms of what you know with the book or in, with these releases, maybe some other things that maybe if if we continue to tell the story, then people will at the Rock Hall will sort of fully realize, you know, the the value and importance. And I think as time goes on and more people discover the replacements, which they have been, and more people continue to be influenced by them, that there'll be kind of a a, a further, better recognition of them as trailblazers or pioneers or whatever for a certain kind of uh, period and and, and slice of of music, and then maybe they'll get their sort of whatever. But I mean, I don't think Tommy or anybody's waiting by the phone or would really care all that much either way. I think the replacements have always been for lack of a better term, kind of a people's band, you know, uh, a fan's band. It wasn't necessarily about getting on the radio or selling records or being this kind of, uh, you know, commercial entity. It was really about the people that got the replacements, that loved them, loved them very dearly. And I think that continues. I think the audience is bigger and the number of those people has grown. And that's certainly our goal is to keep growing that with people who know and can hear them and and come to appreciate and love them. Uh, So I think that's really ultimately, you know, what what you want. Uh, You know, Peter mentioned did earlier about you know maybe paul hasn't gotten a song on the radio but you know when they did that reunion and they were playing a sold out forest hill stadium in new york to fourteen thousand people who were singing along to every word of these songs that had never gotten on the radio really or been considered hits that might be an even sweeter kind of victory and an even better kind of success to have than somebody decided to play their song on the radio for 40 years ago i think this is their success is for all time. And, and, and hopefully, you know, we're, we're adding to that story with these releases and to that success and to the people who, who will get a chance to hear and appreciate them. Yeah. Well said, you know, I was intrigued by what you said about Chris Mars warming up to chatting about this time 
uh, and his time in the band, which he has been reticent to do. And we're just talking about the reunion tour from uh, many a few years ago now. I guess almost it's been what I don't remember when that was. It happened in twenty thirteen, fourteen, thirteen to twenty fifteen. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So. Again, I'm not trying to uh, set up too much intrigue here. Is there? Well, you know where I'm coming from now. Is there any inkling that some band activity might occur anytime soon, Bob? Uh, I think the further it gets away from that, the less likely it is. I mean, I think, you know, Paul's manager has been on the record as saying that basically he's retired from music, you know, in terms of making new music, although there's a lot of unreleased stuff in his solo sort of world. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think as time goes on and you know, Paul's 62 now or something like that, which is hard to believe. But, um, you know, I just think it gets less and less likely. But as I always say with the replacements, uh, I will never predict what. Paul or the band will ever do because that's a fool's errand, you know, um, they could surprise everybody and go on tour tomorrow. But, you know, I, I just think as time goes on, it becomes less likely. And I think that reunion tour, even though it sort of ended somewhat abruptly, I think it was such a victory lap and such a success that, and such a high note to go out on in terms of an active thing. I think there's a chance that that's how they want to leave it. But, um, you know, they've also, I think, granted us and the fans the ability to sort of enjoy more and new music in a sense with three issues by allowing us to, to to do these so i think there's still like i said i think there's still more more to the story that will be told and more chapters to add whether that includes more shows i i don't know and, and, and maybe not but yeah but but i think there's more there's there's more going to be happening in replacement hopefully over time appreciate that insight bob uh just to wrap this up i'm going to go to jason for the shilling the promo. <laughs> where, where, where we all learn? He already slipped a sly one in there. He mentioned Rhino.com. That was genius. Good job. But is there, is there? If you want, if people want to learn more about this set and uh, all these uh, wonderful uh, uh, promotions, uh, clips, and things that you guys have been putting out in uh, relation to the release of this set, Jason, where would you like to direct people right now uh, to get more info about buying the set, learning more about the set? Go to rhino.com. We've got a crazy bundle that you can get. And also like check out check out some of the new videos that we've created for Sorry Mall that are on YouTube or your preferred uh, video streaming platform. Excellent. So as we're speaking, uh, this box set is going to be out uh, pretty soon. I wonder if it's feasible, Jason, yes. for us to go out, go out on a song potentially from this set. Is there something we can play for people to whet their appetites for this new Sorry Ma collection. Sure. Yeah, let's play something. Uh, now, now, who wants to pick? This is where things are going to get dicey and heated. <laughs> I, I, I think the first track that we released as a team in the set, which I hate music, it's the studio demo of that. It was during the time that Peter sort of brought the band into Twin Tone. Actually, the first time they were ever going to be in the studio, even though they just were recording it two-track and in a sense you talk about us and failure and and all that stuff well they were kind of playing for their lives at this point i mean they had sort of peter had offered them a deal trying to convince paul stark to uh you know uh, let them record an album and so i think you know for a band in that situation first time in the studio first time even considering making a record and uh and and having to win someone over which frankly you know they were not <laughs> as history would prove were not wants to do when people they really came in and just 
delivered an incredible set of songs that they just blasted through. It was so good, in fact, the two of them ended up on that finished album. But this version of I Hate Music from the studio uh, demo, the Twin Tone demo, you know, has not previously been released. And I just think it's it's a slightly different groove than the released album version, but the energy is just so incredible and ferocious and so desperate and powerful that I think it's it's really one of those things that... Uh, one of the things I'm proudest of that we that we're getting out on this because it's just such an amazing uh, reflection of what the power of a band in a in a crucial moment can really be like. Well, Bob, I appreciate your uh, you know the sentiment, what you're saying about this song, and you also I asked Jason. You picked up the baton from him. That was great. You rescued, rescued Jason. <laughs> Peter, 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 do you object to this selection? I just, I'm just. I think so. Is that okay? Great. It's a great selection. So it's one that I might have uh, suggested. Did you ask me? <laughs> okay. So by my count, this is track 27 of 100 on this beautiful new set. I hope I have the right one. This is I Hate Music, the studio demo by The Replacements. Uh, this was really, really fun. Uh, Bob, Jason, Peter, thank you so much for your time and your insights here. I wish you the best of luck with everything going forward, and I hope we speak again soon. Thank you very awesome. much. Thank you. Thank you. is full of what ifs some awesome like what if ai could fold your laundry and some well less awesome like what if you have unexpected medical costs united healthcare can help get you covered with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans they supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs no deductibles no enrollment periods and especially no more what ifs visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There you go. You got an exclusive track there from the new replacements box set for uh, Sorry Ma. Forgot to take out the trash. Hope you enjoyed that. Thanks very much again to Peter Jesperson and Jason Jones and Bob Mayer for being on this, the 644th episode of Creative Control, which is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you can't find an episode that you've heard about and you're looking for it, or if you want to learn more about me, sign up for my monthly newsletter please visit my website vishkana.com you can also like creative control on facebook or follow the show via twitter at vishcreative or you can follow me directly on twitter and on instagram at vishkana also visit patreon.com slash creative control to make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this podcast six dollars or more a month grants you access to exclusive content and if you're interested in receiving uh, creative control t-shirt just message me on patreon and i will get you one just as soon as is humanly possible and while supplies last i feel like there's still lots of supplies but i i know they know and i shouldn't say that they've been kind of going lately so if you're interested yeah again message me at uh, patreon.com slash creative control and we'll figure something out uh thanks again to the fine alberta record retailer blackbird music which you can learn more about at their website blackbird.ca also, to Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario, for their in-kind support for this show. Uh, oh, thanks, as always, to my friend Jim Guthrie for lending me some music on the uh, show there. You can learn more about Jim and his uh, vast and intriguing catalog of song at his website, jimguthrie.org. And finally, thank you for listening to this episode about the replacements with uh, Peter and Jason and Bob. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, As I alluded to on this episode, uh, Bob has been on the show. This is his third time on the show. Bob and Jason were on the show, uh, maybe was it already last year? It might have been last year to talk about Pleased to Meet Me and that uh, box set. Never spoken with Peter before, but I've been an admirer, so it's very nice to have them on the show. If you like what you heard, track down those uh, older episodes with Bob and, and, and Bob and Jason. And uh, also subscribe, subscribe to the podcast uh, and perhaps tell your friends about the show and how good you think it is and that maybe they might think it's good. All of that helps. Uh, But otherwise, I hope you're well and stay safe and healthy and all those things. And I will talk to you very soon. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.